Well, uh, good evening, Praxis. Uh, it's good to be with you uh, online uh, this evening, and uh, I'm glad that you're able to, to join us uh, to look through God's Word uh, together uh, tonight. Uh, we are currently continuing our series in the book of First Peter, uh, really with the, the goal of offering uh, you words of hope as those who are uh, currently or, or will be experiencing suffering, difficulty as uh, sojourners. And what do I mean by that, sojourners? It's, it's a word that's used to describe this a sort of identity, uh, like that of a, a pilgrim or a temporary resident in a foreign land whose home is not the present place of residence, and not the culture or way of life uh, that you would have imagined or considered yourself self-aligned with uh, uh, as those who identify as God's people. Living as exiles where you're clearly different and distinguished from the natives of a specific country, state, or city. Why? Because they were born again to a living hope in Christ Jesus, just as you and me are. At the moment of salvation, they inherited not only the promise of eternal life, but they experienced a new life at that point as believers in Christ and living a life obedient to Christ. Just to give a quick recap of the context of what we've been covering this past few weeks, Peter was writing to out-of-place Christians who were dealing with difficulties such as persecution for their faith. They faced ridicule. They faced marginalization. Their religious practice was out of place in the world around them. Their way of life was out of place, much like Israel when they were in exile and captive under the, the power and the rule of other nations. Yet they were God's people, just as Gentile Christians today are God's people, in the sense that we have be both been reconciled and saved by the blood of our Lord and Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so for the past few weeks in our series, we looked at how believers can put on display a positive testimony to a watching world that's also pleasing to our Lord as well. In fact, it's important to understand that the passage we'll be looking at this evening is really connected to the bigger picture of what Peter was talking about all the way back in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, about how to live a life pleasing to God in a world of suffering. In those verses, Peter stated that as sojourners or exiles, they were to keep their conduct among non-believers honorable so that when people who don't have the same faith in Jesus like them and just as uh, in our day me and you that when they speak against you as evildoers that they that they are from a malicious heart that they can see your good deeds that they could see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation in other words, believers have been adopted into God's family and now possess their citizenship in Christ. They're supposed to represent Christ wherever they may be. Such a life pleases God and is according to his purposes. Uh, we looked at how holy living manifests itself in the sphere of living, um, in the sphere of life, where one is subject to the government. Uh, that is in chapter 2, verses uh, 3 through 17. Uh, then we looked at uh, what holy living looks like in the sphere of the workplace, the vocation with different levels of leadership. And then after that, we looked at the relationship between a husband and a wife. And that brings us to our passage this evening, starting in chapter 3, verse 8. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to, to now 
uh, bring them up on, a, on an app or uh, your physical Bibles. And please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we'll be looking at verses 8 through 12 uh, this evening. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 12 reads, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to, to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for just this evening that we can study your word. I pray that you would help us to see wonderful truths, Lord, but also uh, to help us uh, to grow in, in our worship. Uh, and as disciples who are sojourners in this present world, we love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have you ever considered what makes a community compelling? How does a church consisting of God's people have a transformative impact in the world around them? What should they focus on? What is attractive about the church that perhaps those looking in or personally know Christians to be curious or intrigued about the church, about Christianity? What makes a community within a church special or, or supernatural? How should the church relate to the world? Now, while I can't provide all the answers uh, in depth to the questions that I just posed, I can offer you this, that Peter sees as a priority for the community of believers here in this passage. Peter tackles the question of how to grow into a compelling community that not only both, both honors the Lord, but also provides a compelling witness to a watching world, an intriguing opportunity to then share the good news of Jesus Christ to those who may not believe in him or have any interest in Christianity. Peter begins with widening the sphere of applicability to all believers and who he's addressing. Uh, so maybe some of you who, who even though there was relevance and, and, and application in the passage about husbands and wives, for those who are single here in, in praxis, uh, we're not able to, to readily excuse ourselves from this passage. Not only does he address those in marriage relationships, but those who are working under a boss or under a, or a government, but to all believers. Look with me at verse 8 where Peter states, Finally, all of you. You see, this directly impacts and addresses every believer in the Lord. It is a call to live a countercultural, a set-apart life as suffering sojourners. And that brings us to our key idea for this evening, and that Peter challenges us with, is that we are called to be a compelling witness for Christ, both within the church and to the outside world. And so to, to kind of uh, flesh this out, to, to really um, kind of uh, unpack this, I would like for us to consider three points. And the first point I'd like for us to consider and think about 
is this, countercultural conduct within Christian community. You see, part of being a compelling witness means countercultural conduct, characteristics that we are supposed to have within the Christian community. In verse 8, Peter focuses on five characteristics, or you could think about it as five attitudes that we are to grow in or to demonstrate in our lives so that we may be an effective witness, not only as a, the gathered church representing Christ, but also, as we'll see later, in our individual witness to non-Christians in the world. The first way we are to conduct ourselves within Christian community is to vigorously pursue unity of mind. Unity of mind. Unity of mind has to do with being like-minded or single-minded. Now, at this point, I think it would be helpful to note that Peter is not saying that we should all be uniform to each other. Unity does not mean uniformity. After all, the church consists of people from all sorts of backgrounds, both you and me, all sorts of ethnicities, all sorts of socioeconomic backgrounds from poor, middle income, and even, yes, the the wealthy. Nor is he suggesting that we fall exactly within the same political spectrum or party. We don't have the same opinions on politics. After all, if Peter meant uniformity, that would suggest that all of us, maybe perhaps here in Lighthouse or Praxis, you know, we just dress the same, we just look the same, eat the same foods, all agree that fill-in-the-blank has the best ice cream in the South Bay Torrance area, and then bam, we have achieved unity, right? Not so fast. Rather, when Peter says unity of mind, It means that as believers, we're to have this fundamental attitude of harmony amongst one another. Relationships between believers ought to be marked by harmony. A mutual sharing of of the same thoughts, the same attitudes. But just what is it that we mutually share in the same thoughts and attitudes about? What is the single priority and devotion we set our minds to think about as believers? That cohesive thread that binds us all as Christians together? The answer is the gospel. The good news that we as sinners have rebelled against a holy and righteous God and worshipped other idols. But that Christ came. He lived the perfect and righteous life, died on the cross, and suffered the wrath of God on our behalf and then rose again three days later. That Christ paid the penalty of sin by giving up his life on the cross as a substitute in our place. So that we might be reconciled to God. No longer as enemies, but now considered and treated as children adopted into his family. And this is the mindset, this is the harmony that should exist and mark relationships amongst believers in the church. And so it's no surprise to us that Peter stresses the importance of unity in the church. You see, unity is a beautiful thing to behold in the church where people of various backgrounds, uh, unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ, live in harmony with each other. Consider what David writes in Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This was also the desire of Jesus for his disciples when he prayed in John chapter 17, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, 
that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Because just as profitable as it is to honor God in our unity and have a positive testimony to the outside world, our disunity is potently sinful and toxic to our testimony of being changed and changing through the gospel. Right? It contradicts it. It speaks to the opposite of the change that we are to be changing into, which is the conformity of Christ. And that is why the issue of disunity was no small matter in Peter's eyes. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul calls out, a, calls out specific churches uh, and people to address disunity. Uh, remember when Paul wrote to, first, uh, or wrote to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, he, he, he addressed a divided church where Paul described their disunity problem as uh, as approaching their relationships in the flesh because they were jealous they had anger and bitter disagreement amongst other believers there was this toxic arguing not primarily primarily matters on biblical doctrine or truth but for petty and prideful reasons or consider the two women uh, Judea and Syntyche within the church in Philippi uh, where they were urged by Paul to agree in the Lord. You see, these two sisters in Christ were at odds with each other. Their strained relationship was likely publicly known as word even got out to Paul about it when he brings him up in his letter. And so this must have grieved Paul as it does grieve the Lord. Just as a family grieves when there's fighting, uh, anger, uh, biting at each other with words, or perhaps as a child you grew up uh, playing uh, the resentful, shut the door and ignore your family card after an argument, the same thing can happen in the household that is the family of God. When we live in the flesh, and in those moments, what we're doing is we're promoting disunity rather than pursuing unity. And so then this can be us, when we don't have a mind towards living in harmony with other believers, when we hold something against another believer, but never talk through it with them personally, but instead hold a grudge or think negatively about the other person in our hearts. Uh, we don't give the other person the benefit of the doubt. This kind of attitude does not honor the Lord. And so how does this apply to us? How do we pursue harmony in our relationships praxis? Well, I think one way we can pursue unity is having an attitude of unity towards other believers. And if that challenges us not to be relationally distant, even if for a period of time, we need to be physically distant. This means that we'll, we'll seek to pursue Christian community with a unified mindset of serving and loving one another during this time instead of allowing individual uh, selfishness guide us. I believe this attitude of harmony is something we also need to see as being relevant even now in light of COVID-19. Having an attitude of disunity also means casting judgment on others. Which means that if we are to, to have an attitude of unity, we should not be so quick to cast judgment and make assumptions of, What's going through another believer's mind when it comes to maybe social distancing? And how many, how different believers around the world are thinking through uh, this issue right now, uh, meeting together in, in the church? You know, our hearts can be prone to want to assume the worst intentions 
and maybe uh, assume or project uh, the other person's ignorance uh, and want to speak ill of them rather than engage another believer with both love and patience. And when we do so, what we're doing is we're warring against each other. And that affects our testimony to those outside of the church. We get distracted from moving in the same direction of wanting to worship the Lord and proclaim Christ to the world. Instead, bickering and arguing about things that take us away from prioritizing and putting the center of attention on Christ. Secondly, believers should be marked by a sympathy towards each other. Sympathy. The word sympathy has to do with a sharing of feelings. It means that me and you have an attitude of willingness and readiness to, to, to enter into and share into the feelings of others, both other people's joys as well as other people's sorrows. Using the language of Scripture, it's literally to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Romans 12, 15. Believers are called to model this type of mindset. It means that to suffer together, to share in this experience of others. So perhaps when you see someone in the church have a, have a bad week, uh, or maybe even a great week, you acknowledge what the other person is going through. Uh, so maybe someone you know lost his, his or her job, or what has, or who has a loved one who is sick right now, or going through a very difficult and health struggle, sympathy enters, enters into what others are going through. Rather than just silence, believers are called to acknowledge and engage with what the other person is going through. Rather than they ignore him, him or her, and only merely show pity from a distance. We're called to model the heart of Christ in showing sympathy, such as Hebrews 4.15, where the author writes about Christ, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What this means is that when we are pained, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he feels suffering as his own, even though he isn't himself. Just as Jesus' heart is drawn to the suffering and sorrows of his people, we are to model that. We are to model Christ-like sympathy to our brothers and sisters in the Lord, to acknowledge that when one member of the body suffers, we all suffer together. To sympathize effectively means the church should be marked by the business of personal sacrifice of time for the sake of listening and caring for others. It requires a denying of self in order to, to identify with the pains and sorrows of others instead of just distancing ourselves. Right? If someone comes to you with a heart struggle, maybe uh, they're down in the dumps this week uh, of sharing what's been really difficult in their life in this faith. Right? Sympathy it's like, wow, I'm, it looks like, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. That must be very difficult with you, for you right now. And asking follow-up questions rather than just a cold, I'm sorry to hear that. And then kind of just leave it at that. Or when someone really tries to move towards you and, and ask you how you're doing, you know, you're kind of unsympathetic. Uh, you're not really interested in engaging, right? It's like, how was your week? Oh, it was good. Kind of just leave it at that. I know I'm guilty of this all the time. Um, and we can't really, really always use, you know, social awkwardness to kind of justify a reasoning for that. 
But you should always be moving towards each other with sympathy, for, with care, really, really. To want to rejoice with other people's uh, joyous occasions, the, the good that's happening in their life. But also coming alongside during the more troubling times, the more sorrowful times. Well, third, Peter says we are to have brotherly love. Brotherly love is the love one has for fellow Christians. Have you ever heard it said, treat others as you would want to be as treated or variation like that? Well, this is different, but essentially Peter's saying, treat other believers as you would ideally treat members of your family. Brotherly love is that. Treating one another in the household of God as family, right? Now, I want to straight up acknowledge that not everyone has had the most positive views towards family growing up, depending, you know, your, your circumstances, your family situation. I think there's a common acknowledgement that just about all families are dysfunctional to one extent to another. We've been hurt before by our, fa- our family. We've been misunderstood by our family. Um, but you know what? Most of us would acknowledge that despite all that, at the end of the day, you still have each other's back, right? You still look out for one another. You know, if a family member is, is sick, you care for that person. Yeah, sure, no problem. I'll drive you to the hospital, right? We prioritize family. We care for them. If a sibling is going through a tough time in, in school, maybe you have a younger brother or sister, you know, going through the, the teenage years in schools, you know, you, you walk through that season of life with him or her, Right? We expect family to be a place of warmth, a place of concern, a place of care, a place of devotion. Yet what is radical here is that Peter sort of flips the script. Now, he's not saying that you shouldn't love or care for your family. We should. We should love our family and care for family members. But Peter here says things just like Jesus said things that were radical, right? Remember when Jesus said, you know, who are my family but those, you know, who do the will of God? And so Peter, what he's getting at here is that because all of you are in Christ, born to the same living hope, it means that you are to have the same sort of family love with people of the church as you would your immediate blood family, your mom and dad, your brothers and sisters. And this is how the world will come to know that you are the disciples of Christ. This is how you put on and display a testimony that honors the Lord and provides opportunities for the gospel. This is how the world would come to know that me and you are disciples of Christ, that we have love for one another. John 13, 35. Fourth, the body of Christ should be marked by having a tender heart. This means compassion. It's a word closely associated with sympathy. Uh, This word comes from a word that displays the internal uh, organs of a body, like the heart, lungs, liver, uh, which were thought of as a seat of emotions, right? Oftentimes, you've maybe heard it described as the, the, the bowels of someone, right? Deep within them. And so when one is deeply touched or moved towards someone like Jesus saw the crowds of people and he had compassion on them because he saw them harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd, that is the type of heart and mentality that we are to have towards others, right? It's a sensitivity towards other people's circumstances. And not only about sympathizing in word and attitude, but also moving towards that person in acts of mercy. 
And so that's what that word tenderhearted means. To show compassion, sympathy. Right? And fifth, believers are called to have an attitude of humility. An attitude of humility. A humble mind. It is the opposite of pride or as C.J. Mahaney's definition, which I find helpful in defining humility, says, honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. It's a person who's self-aware of, uh, of who, who God is and who we are. It's the opposite of one who brags and seeks to elevate self and reputation, but rejoices over others. One who makes an ambition to be a servant of all for God's glory. Mark chapter 10, verse 43. Now at this point, I think it's helpful to quickly define wrong notions that we might have about humility. You know, humility isn't just thinking poorly of yourself. Like, how can I outdo other Christians or that other person in practice in self-deprecating humor, right? You know, obviously there are situations where one may be better. We also acknowledge that there are situations where you know, one may be objectively better than someone else, right? I mean, I can clearly see that there are some objectively better musicians in the church than me, than me which is why you know, I have no problem in allowing them uh, to serve in the capacity using the gifts and abilities that God has given them. And I'll step down from, you know, playing guitar or singing. Uh, it, it, it's, it's not discounting that, right? Obviously, there are certain people that are better than us uh, to a certain extent and, and worse than us in many facets of life, you know, whether it's managing money, uh, playing certain sports, uh, video games, uh, experts in knowledge of a certain subject matter that me and you are clueless about. But what humility is, is an acknowledgement that even if these, these distinctions do exist, it doesn't entitle me or you to a better standing in life than another person. It challenges all believers to humbly love everyone as God's creation, for God does not play favorites because of our own individual merit. And this stands against the grain of the culture that Peter wrote to during the first century, as it does today. It is, according to Philippians 2, constantly elevating the needs of others over our own because we count others as more significant than even ourselves having a higher opinion in regards of others than ourselves. You know, I also think that having a, a humble mind reveals itself in these ways in our relationships with other believers in the church and here in, in praxis. And that's this. First, that having a humble mind means acknowledging our neediness. You see, the culture teaches self-sufficiency, self-accomplishment, right? Doing things in your own strength, you know, achieving your own goals by your own power, and then you get recognized for that. Achieving personal ambition. But the words of Christ challenges that notion. Christ died to save needy people, right? He didn't die for those who felt like they didn't need a savior, that they had no sin problem, that they didn't need God, right? Those who acknowledge their own sinfulness and their need for Christ in the gospel reveal themselves to be the needy ones. Yet, brothers and sisters, we often forget our own very need and dependency on God in our daily lives, right? Our need for Christ every day and see the gospel maybe perhaps only as a, a ticket to get us into heaven while living our daily life independent of him. We fall into the wrong idea that it's wrong to re receive help from others, right? This sort of false skill. This means that as we help others, 
and serve others, we also might not do so out of an attitude of superiority. It's an awareness that we ourselves serve out of weakness and by, by the power of God's strength. That also shows our neediness in how we serve, right? That we need God. That we need His strength as we seek to serve Him and others. We come to God in prayer as a demonstration of our need for Him too, right? That's another way that we show our neediness. That truly, you know, without you, Lord, I can do nothing. And that is what prayer is. Prayer puts yourself in a posture of humility because it demonstrates our, our insufficiency and our neediness for Him. Uh, second, I would like for us to consider that having a humble mind means appropriately responding to needs in the church. Appropriately responding to, to those in need actually means we're actually serving others in the church, right? Humble people serve. It means that we don't see the church primarily about being you or me, you know, having a high, high view of self. The church revolves around the worship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Humble-minded believers know that. They don't view their relationships with others in the church like a retail consumer. Uh, they don't treat church as an addendum in their life if they can uh, to, to only see what they can get out of it, what they want out of it. That's the opposite of humility because in doing so, what our hearts reveal is that it's really about me, myself, and I. And so all five of these characteristics that were just, that were just mentioned, not the least humility, should mark our family in the church. It should mark our relationships with one another. And in doing so, we set forth a compelling testimony to an outside world which has not readily practiced that. Right? Because they don't have the mind of Christ. They don't know Jesus Christ. They don't have the gospel. Now, I think at this point, you might be thinking, are we done yet? We've just gone through five attitudes which should characterize our lives as sojourners who live countercultural lives for Christ. Yet even now, Chris, we're only here in verse 8. And that's because this observed testimony of transforming power of the gospel that saves and gives us new life doesn't just end there. The church's testimony isn't just a cul-de-sac that never uh, interacts with the outside world. Instead, their testimony, their conduct, ought to be a conduit witness outside of the church. So as he's writing to, to you and me, who have maybe perhaps had a bad week, a tough week at work maybe, he wants us to know that, you know, coming to church or having fellowship on Zoom online each week isn't just about filling you up so you can go back into the world to take another beating, though I'm sure it does help with that. But instead, Peter's saying, look, this is how you relate to one another in the church. And this now is how you are to relate to those outside of the church, right? This is how you continue and kind of expand your testimony to have more far-reaching impact in your individual relationships with non-believers. That's found in verse 9. Which brings us to the second point for this evening, that countercultural conduct towards the world is something that should characterize believers. It may not be readily apparent in verse 9 that Peter is now widening, widening the sphere of relationships amongst believers to include others in the world, but as we read in the following verses tonight and next week, it's going to be clear that the situations Peter addresses here is something that we will all commonly observe and experience in this prevailing culture of our world. 
You see, Peter understands that he's writing to those going through difficult times. They're getting flack for their faith. The outside world just doesn't understand them. Uh, the world is filled with people who have wronged these believers, who have mocked these believers, who don't see eye to eye as these Christians on matters of morality, perhaps, values, who Christ is, who God is. But now you're in the world where the culture is different, right? You're no longer at church on Sunday, perhaps, or at least watching online from home. Now you find yourself in a world where people aren't unified. People aren't sympathetic. They aren't loving. They aren't tender-hearted. They're not humble. How are you going to interact in those situations? Are you going to withdraw and join a church up in the mountains, secluded from the rest of society? How are you to conduct your relationship with those who aren't believers in the church? And so Peter anticipates that believers will be recipients of evil done towards them in life, whether in words or actions. The word for evil is general and broad because Peter understands that evil manifests itself in different ways. It's, it's ways people perhaps wrong or mistreat believers. Yet he challenges believers here with how they respond, right? And the first is the call to non-retaliation. He calls believers to a posture of non-retaliation, to not reciprocate, reciprocate evil for evil. I can imagine the original audience having read this letter or heard it read aloud say, well now Peter, you can't truly mean this, can you? There's gotta be a more nuanced explanation. I mean, I'm not to repay Back evil for evil? But isn't that justice? But instead, you, you want me to bless those who have wronged me? And this would have echoed, this echoed the sentiments of those who heard the teachings of Jesus as well. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 5, 38-39, Jesus taught, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn him the other also. You see, according to Jewish culture and perception, a, a slap or a strike to the face was one of the most demeaning, one of the most disrespectful acts towards another person. After all, if you simply wanted to inflict physical harm, physical damage, bodily harm, it would have made more sense, right, to, to, uh, to punch or to strike another part of the body with a closed fist to cause Maximum physical pain. But an open-handed slap to the face, more specifically the cheek, it wasn't done in order to inflict maximal, maximal amounts of physical pain and damage to a, to a body. Instead, slapping someone in the face was basically a direct attack on someone's honor, a direct attack on their dignity as a human being, as a person. It's to regard the person as less than human. We understand, especially as believers, of the sanctity of human life. The understanding that all human beings have the right to be treated with dignity and value as humans that are created in the image of God. But we also know that we live in a sinful and broken world. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The natural response of sinful human nature would have been to return evil for evil. It would have been the natural bent and tendency of society. 
And so when someone does evil towards you, the unnatural response, the radical response, the countercultural response would be to not return evil for evil. That's because we want to default to self-justification mode, right? Well, you just don't understand. Well, well, well did you not see what he or, see, he or she said to me or, or did to me? I only responded the way I did because fill in the blank. We see this all over the internet, don't we? It doesn't take too long on Facebook or Twitter to realize that on any given post, any different article, on any given topic, people are returning evil for evil, right? Issues and talks about issues in life quickly devolve to character assassinations, personal attacks. Someone who holds a different opinion than us get attacked personally, get called names. Similarly, when we're wronged, Peter calls us not to retaliate as the world would. So Praxis, have you experienced abusive speech in your life, in the world? Words that bite and sink in in intended ways to hurt you? You ever notice in your own life where someone or so, someone says uh, something that's unkind or loving that you perhaps want to match them in your response to the great similar degree? Or perhaps someone had a bad day and has a short fuse towards you out of irritation or impatience. And you want to respond in a similar manner. And then this becomes a vicious cycle where we return in the same kind of attitude and reciprocate in the same manner. Right? We seek equal repayment for how we have been wronged. We demand and are determined to get what we think is right or proper repayment for how we're wrong, do we not? And no matter how it may affect someone or regardless of the consequences, we do this. Like one who feels indebted and seeks repayment for what he sees as justice for evils, we too can seek and take matters in our own hands with a vindictive spirit. We can become like Shylock, a character in Shakespeare's play, who in the early acts of the play characterized a vindictive moneylender who sought extreme repayment on a defaulted loan by demanding the other person's flesh. To quote Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, the pound of flesh which I demand of him is dearly bought, tis mine and I will have it. In moments where our hearts seek to repay evil for evil, or speak words of harm because we have been harmed by harsh words. God calls us to have a posture of non-retaliation, to not seek revenge. But Peter doesn't stop there. In fact, he ups the ante. He goes all in by saying that, well, it's not as if retaliating with evil were hard enough for, for you and me. Peter says that Christians are to respond to evil and insults railed against them with blessing. This is a call to, to radically bless. To follow the example of Christ, who in Luke 23, 34, sought to instead bless when he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. All of this as he endured the torture, scorn, and ridicule, ridicule leading to the cross. Yet even beyond non-retaliation, we're called to bless, right? 
We're called to follow the example of Christ who said to those who, who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. The word for bless here is a call on God's favor for someone. It's to desire God's favor on behalf of those who have wronged you, right? Say, hi, I still wish God would do good you know, on you despite what you just did to me, what you just said to me. It encompasses prayer that seeks the good of the other person and seeks to act charitably still. It's showing kindness to those who aren't kind or charitable towards us. It's to love unconditionally. You bless those who do evil by continuing to be forgiving, continue to be selfless in your love, and to continue to be gracious towards them. Now that is countercultural. And that is how you have an impact for the cause of Christ to the world. What happens when we begin to understand this and live out a gospel-shaped response towards those who have wronged us in our lives? Well, for one, we imitate the goodness of God to undeserving sinners, just as we have been recipients of God's goodness and undeserving as we are. In the gospel, you and me understand that we didn't receive and get what we truly deserve, which would have been the wrath of God and his just punishment for our sin and evil against him. But instead, we receive the blessing of forgiveness and eternal life, Christ Jesus. So praxis. When you find yourself in a situation or have experienced wrongs done against you, perhaps someone gossiped against you, slandered your name behind your back, wrongly blamed you for something, right? Or made a a, a misjudgment about you or insulted you. How will you respond? Maybe it's an insensitive remark intentionally meant to hurt you. While you may able you may be able to agree and pursue a non-retaliatory attitude by keeping silent, will you still go the extra mile and pray for those who have wronged you and seek and do good to your enemies? Practice when we do so. We are truly being countercultural sojourners whose testimony points to the life-changing power and work of the Holy Spirit within us. And that brings us to the third and final point for this evening. Christ-centered motivation leading to blessing. And that's found in the second half of verse 9 all the way through 12. At the end of verse 9, Peter offers the hope of blessing if we bless others. And this is the motivation. Peter recalls Psalm 34, a psalm written by David. Uh, Psalm 34 uh, really focuses on suffering and the hope that the Lord will deliver those who are afflicted. Peter wasn't careless when he used this psalm. You know, he didn't haphazardly, kind of just randomly chose this psalm. But he saw it as relevant and important because it applied to the situation the early Christians were going through during their time. To quote Peter, he uses and begins with an introspective question, whoever desires to love and see good days. One motivation for proper conduct and witness to the outside world is the fact that it's going to lead and result in us loving life and experiencing good days in life in the Lord. Now, this isn't a carte blanche promise that present suffering and evil will end in this life, but what we have been, but that we have been born again in Christ to experience the good life and days as one who is a child of God under God's watchful care in the present, as well as that promise of future blessing, that future inheritance of 
good life and days in the life to come, when we inherit our eternal salvation, when the Lord returns. As believers, we cannot control our circumstances. But what we can control is how we will respond in those circumstances, in our suffering, when evil is done against us. We may respond out of our old nature and then perpetuate that evil cycle through our tongues and lips. Or we can respond radically. We may choose the high road of blessing uh, for those who do evil towards us by not reviling, by not responding in evil, by not being malicious in our words, by putting on those five characteristics that he mentioned. When we live aligned with God's desire for us in this world, we place ourselves in a path to live a life where we can enjoy and experience good, even in the midst of suffering and hardship, right? Kind of reminds me of the book of Ecclesiastes, that book of wisdom that Solomon wrote, that he said that, you know, he's experienced everything in life, you know, wealth, riches, he he had it all, right? But yet he said all of it was was vanity. What mattered the most, what matters at the end, is fearing the Lord and obeying his commands, right? Fearing God and obeying him. But even amidst throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, there are examples of where we can enjoy life, right? To see good in light of connecting things to God. And that is the idea here, that even in the midst of, of suffering, of evil being done against you, if we... If we make it our ambition, our our goal to pursue these, God promises us, not that we won't have hardship or suffering, but we will still be able to see see good days here in this life now and the life to come. That we'll still be able to to experience life the, the way God intended and God desires of us, even in the midst of brokenness and sin in the world. Also, the motivation for having that mindset is found in verse 12, where it says, For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. His point was that when people wrong you or speak evil words against you or commit evil deeds against you, let the Lord be the one who who delivers you from your suffering. Uh, This is a call to put our hope and trust in God to deal with evil and to also judge the wicked. Just as God delivered David from the dangers during his journey in life among a hostile Philistine nation or from being chased and threatened by Saul, we too can have faith that God will deliver us one day from the hostilities that we face in life, in the world. Our pain, our suffering, our experiences of evil done towards us will ultimately come to an end. Our affliction is but momentarily. Living a godly life in this way doesn't earnest salvation, but it sure does give evidence and assurance that our salvation and hope in a future deliverance from the present difficulties in this world will take place. In our pursuit to honor God with our lives as ambassadors to Christ in this broken world, we can have confidence that the eyes of the Lord are upon us and hears our prayers. We can also have hope that he will deal with evil and those who have done evil towards us, for he is the perfect and holy judge of the world. May this be 
an encouraging message for you, despite what you may be going through right now, and also encourage you to how we are to conduct ourselves as countercultural sojourners, both in the community here at Lighthouse and to the wider world as we seek to pursue Christ, pursue, pursue community, and pursue proclaiming the gospel to the outside world. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for just the opportunity that we have to study your word. Pray that you would help us to, to think more deeply on these things, Lord. Uh, to reveal in our hearts areas in which we still need to grow. Uh, perhaps in those five characteristics and attitudes, such as humility, Lord. Or perhaps to, to really reflect in really our testimony to an outside world, Lord. Whether we're adorning the gospel of grace or perhaps hindering those from wanting to hear uh, and to give a reason for the faith that we have within us. So Lord, would you help us to think through these things, Lord, and help us to also grow in these things so that we might represent you well and glorify you, uh, even to the point when you return, Lord, which we anticipate. But for now, Lord, allow us to really experience um, the blessed life now and in the life to come as we hope and place our faith in Christ. We love you. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.